Beautiful weekend. We are so glad that you are here. And so, make sure everybody's awake. Here's the question. I'm, I'm going to get ramped up here so we, we can go big today. Are you ready to study God's Word today? Amen. Okay. Now, grab your Bible. We're going to be in the Old Testament today in the book of Exodus. And so I'll give you some time to find that. Uh, but while you're finding that, the question in our series, we've been asking a number of questions, and uh, the question that we're going to wrestle with today is this, what if prayer has the power to change things? Now, we know that the Bible answers this question and says, yes, the Bible does have, or that prayer does have power to change things, but the question is, do we believe it? And we're going to look at that in detail today because, you know, the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The Bible says that, 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 that when, whenever we ask for something in faith, we will receive it. The B Apostle Paul or, or Peter literally prayed for the resurrection of dead bodies, that uh, Daniel prayed in the den of lions and was delivered. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed in the fiery furnace and they were set free. King Hezekiah prayed when he was near the end of his life and God gave him 15 more years. And yet, I'm not sure that we always believe that prayer has that kind of power. Because think about it. If we did, we would be praying fanatics. Every church in this city would be jam-packed and you could not find a seat. Every prayer gathering, every small group meeting would be filled to overflowing. And so here's what I think. I, I wonder if we have sort of made this decision, even if we don't articulate it, I wonder if behind the scenes, what we are so often thinking is, well, God is God, and He is just going to do whatever He does, whether I ask or not. And so if, if whatever is going to happen is just going to happen, then why bother to pray about it? And so this question of how God responds to prayer and how God works with us in this world is really a question that is debated even within Christianity. There are really two sides to the equation. On the one hand, you have a, a theology called predestination. And the idea here is that God has, at, at its most extreme, the idea is that God has preordained, uh, predetermined, or predestined every single thing that is going to happen. And this theology focuses on the sovereignty of God. Sovereign means that God is all-powerful. God is in control over everything. And so you hear this many times. Christians will say, oh, you know, I, you know, I know you're going through this hard time, but God is in complete control. God has control over everything. Often what people are referring to is this idea of predestination, God's sovereignty. But there's another end of the theological spectrum, not that it's, I mean, there's, there's a further end than this, but we won't get into theology and, and where it gets beyond that into heresy and so forth, but, but free will. Free will agrees that God is sovereign, and free will agrees that God is all-powerful, but that God limits His sovereignty. 
that he limits his power. Why would he do that? In order to allow us to have free will. In order to allow us to make our own choices. And because of that, we have messed up and destroyed this beautiful world that he has created. And and, and in free will, the idea is that in prayer, we take back the control that God gave to us and surrender it back to God in prayer. So which is it? Is everything predestined, preordained? Is God in control and everything happens exactly according to his will? Or has he surrendered some of that to us and given us free will? Does he take his hands off of some of these things and give us some level of control? And here's what I think is the answer. What I'm going to propose to you today is something that we're going to call a theology of balance that includes, to some extent, both of these. And so on the one hand, you have Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. That sounds a lot like predestination, right? Nothing you could do could change anything about God or what He does. But on the other hand, you have Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, where God says, my heart is changed within me, all my compassion is aroused. And so apparently, this kind of sounds like free will, like like maybe there are some things that we can do that will in fact even have an influence upon God's heart. Now, how how, how can that be? How can we balance these two sides? So here's what I would propose is a theology of balance. And it goes like this. Let's put this on the screen. God's character is unchanging, but his actions can be affected by us. That God's character is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. But his actions can be changed by us. Hosea 11 verse 8 says, my heart is changed within me. What what is it that could change God's heart? It's his compassion his heart for us. And so today we're going to look at a great example of this in the Bible. Okay, so I told you to find in your Bible Exodus chapter 32. Listen, a lot of times we have all the stuff on the screen. We're not going to do that today. You got to look it up for yourself. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I'm going to give you some time to find it. You can grab your phone and uh, just on the internet, just put in Uh, Hosea, or I'm sorry, I did Hosea, Exodus uh, chapter 32, and there uh, you can find the passage that we are going to look at today. As you're finding Exodus 32, let me give you a little context. What is happening in this story is the nation of Israel has been freed from captivity in Egypt. And so as they are wandering through the wilderness, God calls for a meeting with their leader, Moses. And so Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai to meet with God while the people are down below in the desert. And while God and Moses are meeting, God gives to him the Ten Commandments. And after 40 days and nights, eventually after more than a month, he comes back down and finds 
that there's been a problem. See, while he's been gone, the people have started to get restless down in the desert, and they start to, to say, we don't even know if Moses is coming back anymore. And they talk to, to Aaron, and they say, we don't want Moses to be our leader anymore. You're second in command. Let's make you our leader now, and let's forget about Moses. I wonder if that's why sometimes leaders are afraid to take a vacation, because <laughs> they're afraid they might lose their job. And so, so, so here's what happened. The people turn to the man who is second in command and say, we, want, we don't want anything to do with Moses and this invisible God anymore. We want a God that, that we can taste and touch. We want a God that we can see and feel with our own hands and see with our own eyes. And, and, and so is, is that sounding familiar at all to our world today? That we would rather worship things than God? And so Aaron tells them to bring all of their jewelry and their earrings, all their gold, and he melts it down and, and has it shaped into the form of a golden calf, an idol that they can worship. And so they throw a big party and they begin to sacrifice to this idol and everybody gets drunk and they say, we don't want to worship God anymore. We want to be like all the rest of the people in the world because they look so happy with their parties. Let's go be like them. And it grieves the heart of the Lord. And in Exodus 32, look at verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation." Have you ever heard that word before, stiff-necked? Do you know where that comes from? Stiff-necked, the idea here in this verse is an ox that will not follow the lead of its master. And so imagine you're riding along on an ox cart, and you've got the reins in your hand, and you tell the ox to go left, and you pull the reins, and what does it do if it doesn't want to obey? It stiffens its neck against the reins. Now, maybe you've never driven an ox cart, <laughs> but I bet you've tried to walk a dog, right? Now, I don't mean to compare you to dogs. Please don't get me wrong. But, but have you ever had a dog and you, you're trying to, like, if you would just relax and follow me, this walk would be very relaxing. But, but as it is, the dog stiffens its neck and is, and that idea of stiff-necked is that, that God says, these people do not appreciate what I've done for them. These people do not appreciate how much I love them and how I have provided for them. And God says, what I'm going to do, Moses, is I'm, I'm fed up with it, and I am about to destroy them and start over with a whole new people, a whole new nation. And then Moses prays an amazing prayer that seems to change things. Listen to this. Exodus 32, picking up where we left off in verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent 
And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you promised, I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So in this prayer, Moses focuses on a few things. That, that he, he talks about how God has chosen these people and how he's been good to them. And he talks about how God's reputation would be affected. What will the Egyptians think? And he talks about how God keeps his promises. And so he, he refers back to the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this prayer, I think there are three things that we can pull from what he prayed for. Moses prayed about these three things. First of all, about God's grace. That God is gracious and kind and merciful, merciful, that the very nature of God himself is that he loves and chooses and cares for people who do not deserve it. Amen? God is gracious. And he focuses on God's glory. You see, all throughout the Bible, we see that God passionately pursues the revelation of his glory to people in this world. And so he says, Father God, what, what, what will the Egyptians and what will people think? What, how will your reputation be affected by this in the world? And then he, he prays God's promises. You need to know that he, he, he prays into the character and the integrity of God. Listen, in his prayer, he quoted scripture. He focused on how God's word is always true, and God is always true to his word. And look at what happened after Moses prayed this, verse 14. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The Lord relented. Now, if you look at this in every English translation, they all basically say something about how God changed his mind. That, that Moses prayed and somehow the direction of God's course of action is influenced. Now, I'm gonna be really raw and vulnerable and honest today. I hope that's okay with you. And just admit something. This seems really weird to me. Like, why would God need for us to tell him what to do? Am I right? I mean, who's the smart one here, us or God? Right? God, God is the one who knows everything. God is the one whose plans are perfect. And so why would God say that he was planning to do one thing, Moses prays, and then God changes course somehow in response to Moses' prayer? Now, maybe you have some other interpretation of what's going on here in the verse. But I think when you study it in the Hebrew, in the original text, I think it's pretty clear that this is what's going on. And so listen, this is so important to understand. Remember we had the balance, theology of balance, that God's character is unchanging, but his actions can be changed by us? A theology of balance. Now what we're going to talk about is a theology of synergy. 
Now, you know what synergy is, right? Synergy is the idea that we can do more together than we can working on our own. And and that for whatever reason, somehow, even though God is all-powerful, instead of just doing things on his own, let's put this on the screen. This is so strange. That somehow the way that God seems to work in this world is that instead of just doing things on his own, God most often chooses to work with us and through us. Let me read to you from C.S. Lewis. He says, I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise as you say he is, then doesn't he know already what is best? I mean, if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? And so that leaves the question, why should we pray? Why does God need for us to take action? What do we have to do with it? And more than just prayer, Lewis says, so why wash your hands? If God intends them to be clean, they'll come clean without your washing them. Why ask for the salt? Why put on your boots? Why do anything? God could have arranged things so that our bodies are miraculously, you know, nourished without food. Knowledge entered our brains without studying or teachers. Umbrellas magically appeared to protect us from rainstorms. But God chose a different style of governing the world. However, one which relies on human agency and choice. The skeptic then is objecting not just to prayer, but to the basic rules of creation. God made space and in the process granted the the favored human species the dignity of causation, which is a phrase from Pascal. God created matter in such a way that we can manipulate it by cutting down trees to build houses and damming rivers rivers to form reservoirs. He granted such an expanse of human freedom that we can oppress each other. We can rebel against our Creator, even murder God's own Son. When Jesus walked the earth, He could not do any miracles in his hometown in Nazareth because of the residents' lack of faith. An an example of, of God's power disabled by unbelief. Or, Or check this out. Remember at the end of Jesus in his time here on earth that he gathers his disciples together? And he calls all of them together and says, okay, I'm about to go back to heaven. I'm preparing to leave you. He said, but but it's okay. Before he went back to heaven, here's what he said. John 16, verse 6. Jesus said, because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Jesus said, because then I can send the Holy Spirit. Now, how could it be for our good that Jesus go away? Now, Now, we are so grateful for the Holy Spirit and His presence here in this earth. But come on, if we had the choice 
Would you rather not, given the choice, be able to have Jesus here in the flesh? Would you not rather have Jesus right here teaching you instead of me? I mean, come on. Would you not rather have Jesus where you can touch him and see him and listen to his voice and look in his eyes and watch him do miracles face to face? I mean, is that not what we would rather have? And while we're at it, why doesn't God just just provide food also for every person to solve all the world's hunger problems? And why doesn't God just just eliminate all disease and sickness? Why does God not eliminate tyrants like Hitler or, or suicide bombers? Why does he let us keep destroying this earth that he created? And why did he then send his son at a moment in time in human history to a remote corner of this earth with a public ministry that only lasted for three years? And then why did he have him teach in his own person and then at the end of that three years look and say that as he goes back to heaven and leaves us here that somehow all of this is for our good. Can can we just be brutally honest? This is one of the fundamental questions of humanity, and it gets a lot of people very angry when they think about God. Am I right? That, that most people, would we not say, if God is so good, then why does he not just fix all the problems in this world? It's a question that I've wrestled with. But then I read this profound answer from Philip Yancey. He says, of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is, unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim, he went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into direct communion with God and into the struggle against the forces of evil. C.S. Lewis says, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. He allows us to neglect what he would have us do or to fail. Perhaps we do not realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills to coexist with omnipotence. It seems to involve at every moment, almost a sort of divine abdication that we struggle to understand. And and here's what I think that all of this means to me, is that in this world, God chooses to work in us, with us, and through us, but very seldom does he work without us or around us in this world. Let me say that again, and it should look kind of familiar here to our purpose as a church. (laughs) That in this world, God chooses to work in us, with us, and through us, but very seldom does he work around us or without us in this world. 
And all of a sudden, we start to get this overwhelming sense when we begin to realize how much of God's plan rests in our hands, in our actions, in our prayers. Ralph Wilson puts it this way. When it comes to you and your prayers, you must must act as if everything is not predetermined. You must believe that your prayers can change God's mind and action. If you don't, you won't be able to pray like Moses or Abraham or Elijah, but only a passive, thy will be done. See, certainly, Jesus prayed that prayer Thy will be done, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Yes, Jesus prayed that, but only after wrestling in prayer with his Father. Our problem is that we are unwilling to wrestle in prayer as did Jesus. We don't believe in the power of prayer, so we pray wimpy prayers. Is that true? Do we pray wimpy prayers? but we don't have to. That God has said that he has given us the right to come boldly into his throne, not by our own goodness, but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ who has imparted to us his righteousness, granting us the privilege, even the right, and even the responsibility to come before him and ask him and allow him to come in to have his way among us. Notice also this prayer of Moses was not a selfish prayer. It wasn't God give me lots of stuff and and a pretty house and a comfortable life. See, the most powerful prayers are selfless prayers. Now remember, this is not an easy, comfortable prayer for Moses. Why? Because who is he praying for? Is he praying for himself? Not that that it's wrong to pray for yourself, but is that what Moses is doing? No. Who is he praying for? He is praying for the very same people who rejected him, who said, we don't want Moses to be our leader anymore. The very people who rebelled against him and hurt his feelings, and yet here he is praying on their behalf. You see, the most powerful prayers are selfless prayers. Another thing that you see here is that Moses was not praying for something that was outside of God's will. Moses was actually praying the truth, the promises of Scripture. He actually quoted God's Word in his prayer. And listen, so often... We don't realize that if you want to pray powerful prayers, you need to know the Bible. You need to study God's Word. That's what we look forward to. Oh, it's going to be so good in our small groups this fall. As we get together and break open God's Word together and apply it to our lives together, a lot of the frustration, listen, a lot of the frustration in our lives, I think, comes from the fact that so often we are ignorant of God and His Word. So often we expect God to do things that He has already said in His Word that He will not do or in ways that He will not do it. We need to know the truth of Scripture. 
And so perhaps the key to moving the heart of God is praying these three things. God, you are a gracious God. You are merciful and kind. You have chosen us and loved us even though we don't deserve it. And God, even though we don't deserve to come and ask anything because of what Jesus has done for you, for us, we have the right, the privilege, and the responsibility to come and ask because you're a gracious God. And we pray God's glory. Lord, I don't want to pray a selfish prayer. Heavenly Father, whatever I ask, may it be done for your glory, not for my glory, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the mission of your church in this world. And also, Lord, we know that you keep your promises, that you are always true to your word because your word is always true. And I also need to pray, what if God doesn't do what I ask in the way that I ask or in the time that I ask? And so I need to pray, and Father, whatever you choose to do, your will be done. Because I trust you. You know what is best. And so much of God's work in this world depends upon our faith and our prayers. And so today our what-if question turns to this. What if this were the year at Moncton Wesleyan that we prayed like never before? You know, this past year we started, when I started up here uh, last summer as the pastor, having uh, prayer gatherings in the North Hall at 10 o'clock. And at, at 10 o'clock, we have teams that are praying all over the church. We have children's ministry teams that are praying at 10. We have uh, technical teams and people who are involved in here uh, preparing for the worship service, praying at 10. We have greeters and frontline people and, 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 I mean, people all around the people, around the building that you will see in circles praying at 10 o'clock. But on any given Sunday, if you are not involved in one of those team prayers, we invite you to come to prayer in the north hall of the atrium at 10. Because we believe that prayer changes things and God cannot do what he wants to do in this place and in our lives apart from us calling out in prayer and inviting him to do so. That's why this summer we started our new prayer team that's here available for ministry after the service. And all summer long, and this, we hope this will continue forever and ever, that, that we have people who have been trained and equipped as prayer partners for you who come down front at the end of the service, and anyone can come down and receive prayer over anything that, it, that there is in your life that you would like someone to join you in calling upon the name of the Lord. That's why we're so excited about small groups this fall. So, so excited. We've been working so hard and can't wait next month. We can't wait to roll all this out so that you can see how all of this is going to work. But one of the things that is, is so key to the mission of small group life within the church is prayer. One of the questions that, that we've been asked is, you know, hey, we miss rising during the summer. Are we going to start back our rising prayer gatherings 
in the fall? And the answer is, well, yes, kind of. Because actually, we are going to have, we hope, more prayer than ever before through the ministry of our small groups. And so instead of just calling people together once a month here in this room for prayer, we're calling people together twice a month for prayer in neighborhoods all around our region, in homes, to call upon the power of God, to pray for miracles. We believe that God is going to do amazing things, that lives are going to be changed, that answers to prayer are going to flow like a mighty river through this place in ways that we can't even begin to hope or imagine. And so we want to ask you, this year, will you pray that God will move in this place like never before? Today, we're going to celebrate communion and it'll give you some quiet time to put into practice what we've talked about today. And so, as we invite the ushers to come forward, we practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't even have to necessarily be a regular participant in this church in order to pray, but you need to be a member of Christ's church universal in order to be part of communion because it is for believers. And so if you've not yet made a decision for Christ, please do not feel embarrassed to just pass the tray on down the row. It's okay. Nobody is going to judge you. Listen, we're just glad that you are here. But if you're a Christian here today, as you receive the elements, and by the way, we're just glad you're here, and we hope that this is the day that you'll make that decision to give your life to Christ, <laughs> which means to confess your sin, receive the forgiveness that Jesus offered through his death and resurrection, and make a decision to follow him for the rest of your life. And so if you've done that today, we want to ask that as you receive the elements for communion, as you take the piece of bread, and as you take the cup, that you would hold those in your hands. And for the next little while, as you hold it in your hands, we're going to give you this time to pray. And as you pray, maybe you're praying today for a loved one, someone who is far from Jesus. Maybe your prayer today is for a situation at work. Maybe you're praying today because you're getting ready to start back to school. And you want to pray that God will help you be a light to be strong in your testimony for Jesus in your school this year. Maybe God has burdened you for our city or for a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you need healing today. Maybe you want to pray for the ministry and mission of this church as we reach our community and see a great number of salvations and, and baptisms and lives transformed this year. Maybe you need to pray on behalf of one of your children or maybe for your parents. And so let's pray and bless this communion. We Father, Father, we thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. 
Thank you that he opens the door of salvation for all who believe. Thank you that Jesus is at your hand, your right hand, Father, interceding on our behalf. And so we pray that your blessing would be over this bread that represents the body of Jesus and that the cup that represents the blood that he shed on the cross would be blessed as we spend these quiet moments in prayer. May you hear and may you respond to the prayers of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as you receive the elements, would you hold on to them for a few minutes until I come back and lead us to receive them together. But take this time, take this time, close your eyes or whatever you need to do to focus in on God and call out to the Lord who loves you today.